It is a joy to be back and to be with all of you tonight. I'm grateful to see our young people here sitting close and uh, uh, always means a lot to me. I've worked as a a youth minister for a few years before moving to Burleson in uh, 96. I've always had a a special place in my heart for working with young people and um, just want you to know how much I appreciate y'all being here on Wednesday night and not just being here, but sitting here close. It it means a lot, means a lot to an old man. Um, Just by way of, for John, by way of reminder, uh, August the 15th of this year marked 34 years since he conducted our wedding ceremony. So it's been 34 years that Rhonda and I have uh, have been married, and uh, it has, as I said it earlier at, at home, I said it's been a good run, and I hope that um, I hope it lasts a lot a lot longer. But um, I appreciate John and Jennifer and their family, and and treasure uh, their friendship, and and thankful that uh, I'm able to visit with them just briefly, even for a little while tonight. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the Book of Romans, chapter one. I'm getting old man's disease. I think I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and then other times I find out that I don't. I worked on my sermon for tonight in my head. I get an idea if I'm going to preach somewhere, and I get an idea. I look at my topic, and I think about it, and I get it, start just mulling it over for a number of days. And, and I worked on this one for a number of days, and then about three days ago I looked down, and I was actually working on a sermon that I'm supposed to preach in Hatton, which is up out of Florence in November. So I'm, I'm ready to go to Hatton. But, uh, so we'll find out if I was ready to come to Montgomery. The topic, as I understand it, is that is separated from God, the terrible consequences of sin, and the world's attempt to diminish them. That might be the longest sermon title I have ever preached. Separated from God, the terrible consequences of sin and the world's attempt to diminish it. We're going to look at this in, in, uh, in three aspects. We're going to look at, first of all, the terrible consequences of sin in this life. Then we're going to look at the world's attempt to diminish the consequences of sin in this life. Then we'll close by looking at the terrible consequences of sin in reference to eternity. So that will be our format of study tonight. And so with regard to the matter of the terrible consequences of sin in the present, I want us to direct our attention to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18. And we'll walk through this text. I won't read the entirety of the text just for the sake of time because we'll walk our way through the text looking at some of the particulars that are, uh, that are therein. But I want us to focus on verse number 18 where the Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, here's something I want you to think about in this particular verse, and it is the shortest word in the verse. There in that opening line, look, it says, says, The wrath of God, what's my next word? What is? Now, when we think about the wrath of God being revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness, where where does our mind want to tend to go? Judgment, right? When we think about God's wrath with regard to unrighteousness and ungodliness, 
I mean, it's just natural. Our mind goes to the judgment and God's going to consign all of the unrighteous uh, uh, to eternal perdition and His wrath is going to be revealed in them at that time and that place. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the wrath of God not will be revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. Present tense. And I want us to think about some of the, some of the uh, ways that God's wrath is revealed in the present. But first of all, I want us to note this. I want us to note, first of all, what I call the road to ungodliness and unrighteousness in this text. What is the road by which a people, a society, a nation goes from being a nation that is marked generally by righteousness to one that is marked by generally by ungodliness and unrighteousness? And the first one is found there in verse 18. There is the suppression of the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, unri- un- all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How do they suppress the truth? Well, look at verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And note that the text says, the inspired writer says, God has manifest Himself in them. God has manifest Himself in you in a variety of ways. As David would say, God has manifested Himself in me in the sense that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How could anyone look at the complexity, just the simple complexity of the human body and say that there is no God? Our bodies scream design from, from, from beginning to end. God has revealed Himself in us. Not only in, not again, not also not in our, just our biology, but He's revealed Himself in us in our psychology. I mean, we know inherently that God exists. It's in man to know that God exists. In fact, think about this. A person has to be taught that there is no God. Have you ever thought about that? A person has to be taught that there is no God. Now, Todd, how do you know that? Well, I've been, I won't say I've been all over the world, but I've been a lot of places, particularly in the nation of Africa. I've been to West Africa uh, 14 times, been to two different nations there. I've been to East Africa, been to Kenya over in East Africa. And let me tell you something. Everywhere you go on that continent, people believe in deity. I'm not saying they believe... Look, I'm not telling you they believe in God. Now, there are a lot of people who do, okay? But anywhere you go, people believe in deity. Think about even the... Think about the Native Americans. They believed in deities. 
There was the God of the moon, the God of the sun, the God of the rivers, the God of the trees, the God of the plains, the God you know, of the buffalo, or whatever gods that, that they had conjured up in their minds. But what, what does that say? That's, it tells us that even those individuals understood that humanity was not sufficient to explain the existence of all these things. Therefore, something greater than themselves had to have created it and put it in place. And everywhere you go on this planet, people believe in deity. Whether they believe in some singular God or some, some multifaceted uh, uh, number or you know, some multiplicity of gods. But rest assured, man left to himself will worship a God. Only a man who has been instructed that there is no God will ever embrace that foolishness. So God has revealed Himself in us, in our biology. He's revealed Himself to us in our psychology, in our minds. So the first thing about the road to unrighteousness is a suppression of the truth. We know what is right and wrong. We don't have to be taught. I'm not talking about in a religious context, okay? Again, go anywhere on the planet and murder is wrong. You know, go anywhere on the planet and child abuse is wrong. You know, you know, if there is no God, explain to me how those things are consistent all over the globe. Explain to me how that, how that happens. Well, there's only one way for it to happen. God has to put it into the heart and the mind of man. And so there's, first of all, the road to unrighteousness is a, it involves a suppression of the truth. But then, secondly, in verse 21, once the truth is suppressed, there is, look in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's the second step in the road to ungodliness. A dark heart. You suppress the truth long enough and you'll create a, a dark heart. Think about the people that you might know that you might describe as having a dark heart. I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy spending time around people like that. Their foolish heart was darkened. But then just for the Call sake of time, look at verse 22, look at number 3, or point number 3 under the road to ungodliness. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Suppression of the truth, darkening of the heart, and exchanging divine wisdom for human wisdom. That'll lead you down the road of ungodliness. And by the way, we'll look at some of these things in this list that's about to follow beginning in verse 24. There's the road to unrighteousness and ungodliness. And now Paul's fixing to give us the revelation of that. But when I say revelation, I mean he's going to reveal to us what are the results of traveling this road of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the very first one in that list, verses 24 through 27, is the matter of homosexuality. When a, nation embrace, when a nation embraces what the Bible describes as against nature, it's against nature. 
No, it's not just against humanity. It's against all of nature. Homosexuality is, is a denial of basic biology. You know, look, if you're going to follow, you know, if, you, if truth matters, if you're going to follow the science, you, know, you, you understand that these things are anti-science, they're anti they're anti-biology. By the way, when I was a kid in the, in the 80s, there was this vast effort by the mainstream media to somehow prove that people were born as homosexuals. And about that time, there was what was called the Human Genome Project, where they were mapping all of, 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 of the, the, the genes in, in, the, in the human genetic makeup. And Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine, which those things probably don't even exist anymore, so you've probably never even heard of them, but they used to be a big deal. And, uh, and all these magazines, U.S. News and World Report, all these covers, little babies, is this child born gay? You know, and, and they kept pressing. And they just knew that the Human Genome Project was going to reveal the gay gene. And when, the, when that project revealed the gay gene, all those Christians would have to shut up. Because it would prove that their Bible was wrong. But guess what they never found? They found cancer genes. <laughs> they found addiction genes. But guess which one they never did find? I'll give you two guesses and the first one don't count. They never found the gay gene. And so they just dropped that thing and just went on to something else. But I want you to think about that. You know, we were being sold, like I said, I graduated high school and I'm not ashamed. I graduated in 85, all right? Big hair, mullet, you know, all of it. I did, I, my wife had big hair and I had a mullet. That's better than the other way around. Yeah, but we, you know, we were being told all of these things about our, our spiritual, our, 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 our religious beliefs, and that science, that science was going to come along and it was going to undo everything that we'd ever, that we'd ever been told. And the, at that time, the primary thing was the, the homosexual thing, and it was wrong. They were wrong. And by the way, I never doubted that they were wrong because I believe the Bible. Whatever the when the Bible says a thing is right, it's right, and the Bible says that homosexuality is vile. It's against nature. Uh, I mean, you can just look at the descriptive terms that that Paul uses here in Romans chapter one. But that's one of the manifestations of the road to ungodliness. But then look also at uh, verse number twenty nine. Uh, you find the front now. By the way, it just depends on what rendering you're. If you're reading from the King James or the New King James, you'll find you'll find sexual immorality being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality. Uh, ESV, NASB don't have that in 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 that text, but I think it's I think it'd be clearly understood that those are the types of behaviors that would be indicative of the road to ungodliness. We live, you know. We live in a society that has really devalued sexual expression by their vain and perverted attempt to exalt it. Does that make sense? No, it's in their attempt to, to make sex everything, they've turned around and made it nothing. 
and, and they've taken they've taken something that, that God has created and something that is good and right and beautiful when it's in its when it's in its proper place and they've absolutely demolished it. It doesn't mean anything to, to, to the biggest part of our society anymore. That's the road to ungodliness. Look at verse 29 again. Wickedness. That's depravity. That is, there ain't nothing that a lot of people won't do. That's depravity. By the way, do we live in a society that is depraved today? By the way, they don't even try to hide their depravity anymore. Matter of fact, the more depraved you can be, the better chance you'll get of getting a television show. I mean, let's just be honest. That's the, wor- that's the world that we live in. Wickedness. Look at the next one. Maliciousness. They're also in verse 29. Maliciousness. By definition, that word means poison or like a cancer. Poison or like a cancer. Our society is poisonous. Our society is like a cancer. We've already long gone down the road of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Then you have, look down here at... uh, um, we well, have murder there in verse 29. You know, you know, why are people being murdered at increasingly higher rates year after year? Well, I would I would say that it's one reason is is because people are being taught from the time that they're children that as human beings they're not created in the image of God, rather they are the process of some godless amoral evolutionary uh, uh, process. Now, if you can look at a person as being nothing more than a puddle of mud, it's not hard to stomp in it, is it? But when you see people as being made in the image of God, things change. And then, the rendering here in the New King James, in verse number 31, it says, undiscerning, untrustworthy, and then unloving. Unloving. That is a weak rendering. Unloving is, that's weak. Here's what the word is. In the Greek, it's the word astorgia. A meaning the opposite. Storge meaning love. But it means the opposite. It's the opposite of love. But the Greeks had about six or seven different words that were rendered, that we would have rendered as love. Now, now storge does not appear anywhere in our New Testament. It's not, it's not used. But a storge is used. And it means you don't have it. And the King James, I think, really nails it here. Without natural affection. Without natural affection. You want me to summarize without natural affection in one word? Abortion. Without natural affection, abortion, where an individual who is the only individual who can care for another individual decides that that individual is not worthy to live and is sacrificed. By the way, think about this. When you read in the Old Testament, you read about Molech, and it talks about he made his children pass through the fire. That's child sacrifice, by the way. 
If I understand correctly, that Molech had a giant hand that set out like this, and, a, and it was made out of brass, and a, a fire was built underneath that hand until it became red hot, and the child would be brought and literally fried to death on that red hot hand. And we think, what a horrible thing to do to take an innocent child and sacrifice it to some to some wooden or brazen idol. But I would say, how horrible is it that a woman would sacrifice her child on the altar or the idol of convenience? It's not convenient for me to have this child. I'll just kill it. I don't think I can afford to keep this child. I'll just kill it. I've got a career ahead of me. I'll just kill it. Without natural affection. And then lastly, again for the sake of time, unmerciful. By the way, again, another word that doesn't mean that just that you a person lacks mercy. They're the antithesis of mercy. The ESV renders it ruthless. Ruthless. We live in a society that's marked by ruthless people. Whether it be in government, whether it be in business. You know, look, even Little League baseballs eat up with ruthless people. I mean, let's just be honest. We live in a world of ruthless people. There's nothing that they won't do to get what they want. There's nobody they won't step on. There's nobody that they, you know, that, that they won't mash to get what they want. Now that's the road or the revelation of that's the revelation of God's wrath. The fact that we live with more babies being born out of wedlock than in wedlock. That's God's wrath revealed. Which, by the way, leads to a host of other societal problems like poverty and, 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 and what it does to our school systems and, and all those types of things. And by the way, I can speak a little bit about school systems. My wife's a teacher. My daughter's a teacher. My son's a teacher. My son-in-law is a teacher. And my stepdad's a retired teacher. I know a little bit about teachers. Matter of fact, I'm about sick of hearing about teachers. At church, one of my fellow elders and his wife was also a teacher. So guess what we had to listen to? He and I had to listen to every Sunday at Sunday dinner. School. Man, I'm tired of hearing about school. All right? But all the problems of the road of ungodliness are manifest in every aspect of our society. And so that's the wrath of God. You know, you, why kids are failing in school, dropping out of school, killing one another in school. All those things are the wrath of God being revealed right now against all unrighteousness. The present. Now, second... The world's attempt to diminish them. I had what I got till 7.15? I think I can make it. Four, four parts in the world's attempt to diminish, diminish separation of the consequences of sin. Number one, renounce God. Just renounce the idea of God. You know, Atheism may be one of the fastest growing religions in America. And by the way, atheism is a religion. You know, it is a taught, it is a taught value system. I mean, and that's the very essence of what religion is. Whether you know, whatever kind of religion it is, atheism is a religion. It's a growing religion. 
more and more and more of our high school seniors are going to college questioning their faith or already having their faith destroyed. And if they're even on the fence a little bit, by the time they get out of college, they don't don't believe in God anymore. Now, we're not only faced with an ever-growing army of atheists. We now deal with militant atheists. Look, there's always been atheists. I mean, all the way back in the days of David, there were atheists. I mean, didn't David say in Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart there is no God? So David had to deal with atheists. There's always been atheists. But now atheists are militant. They're not satisfied for them to be atheists and you to be a believer. They think it's their life mission to turn you from being a believer into an unbeliever. Again, whatever it takes. And by the way, when you're dealing with people who don't believe that there's a God, you're also dealing with people who have no sense of right or wrong. They have no no moral moorings. And again, they'll be ruthless. They'll be merciless. They'll do whatever it takes to try to convince you that their way is right. And so first of all, just renounce God. By the way, here's a a quote I've I've used a lot through the years by uh, an individual by the name of Aldous Huxley. Huxley was born in the late 1800s, uh, was a well, well known among, among the, the, the English, uh, died I believe in uh, the 1960s, uh, but Huxley was one of the most well known atheists and skeptics of his day. And here's what he said in his book written in 1937 called Ends and Means. I'll just read this. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And consequently, I assumed that it had none. So in other words, I wanted it this way, so I just assumed it was going to be this way. And I was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain sense of morality. In other words, we didn't like living the way the world said we were supposed to live. He says, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. In other words, we couldn't do what we wanted with our bodies because the world frowned on it. And the world frowned on it because the world believed in God, so therefore we're just going to assume God doesn't exist and whatever they think or, or say doesn't matter to us anymore. The supporters of this system claim that the world claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning of the world. There was one simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. In other words, we'll just, we'll just act like God doesn't exist. We don't want God to exist. Let's just assume that God doesn't exist. Let's find whatever straw that we can grasp at to say that God doesn't exist and we'll just live our lives the way that we want to and we won't even listen to this noise from the people on the outside. Just renounce God. Now, is the world trying to get us to renounce God? Again, not just the world, in our society. Are there more and more people in our society wanting us to renounce God? God? More specifically, wanting us to renounce our religious faith? Let me ask you this. Are there people in our political system that are actively working against people of faith? Absolutely there are. That's a renou- just, just renounce God, number one. Now, now number two, we're going to rename sin. 
Here's how the world... They, they take something that, that's vile and ugly and they give, it a, they give it a better name. By the way, I just, let me just give you a singular example. If, uh, if you were reading in the newspaper in, say, 1940... That, you know, by the way, they used to write about local events in the paper. I lived in a small town, and you know, about all the little league games were in there, and you know, just everything going on in town was in the newspaper. And by the way, if you're a big Andy Griffith fan, and you should be, you know, they had a paper on there called uh, a little section called Mayberry After Midnight. You know, and Opie got to writing about all the local gossip. That didn't go, over, you know, didn't go over too well. But let's just say you're reading a small town newspaper in, say, the 1940s, and, and somebody wrote about some social club had a party, and they would say, it was a gay affair. It was a gay affair. Now, those of us that are old enough, we know exactly what that means, right? It was a great, it was a great gathering. It was a lot of fun. A lot of, but, but if you read that in the newspaper in 2021, and it said it was a gay affair, you know, do you, want be, do you want to be caught at a gay affair? Not today you don't. When I was a kid you might. But what's happened? They've taken a perfectly good word. They've taken a perfectly good word and perverted it into something that it's not. And now you can't even use the word gay anymore. It's, like I said, it's a perfectly good word. They've destroyed it. Kind of like if your name is Karen... You know, I feel sorry for you. You know, it's no fault. It's not your fault. But so you, so you see where I'm going with this. People hear words and they immediately associate them with something other than what they should associate them with. What about just the word? I use the word. I use, by the way, I use two words in that initial. I use the word gay and I use the word what? What? Affair. Now, in 1940, an affair was an event. And in 2021, an affair is what? It's adultery. We don't say that they committed adultery. They say they had an affair. You see how the world renames things to make them not sound as bad? Fornication's now just living together. You know, we've decided to live together, move in together. Well, it, it's still what it's always been is fornication. It's, a, it's against the law of God. So we're going to renounce God. We're going to start renaming. We're going to rename sins. Number three, we're going to start redirecting blame. We're tired of having the finger pointed at us, so, so we're going to redirect. And by the way, that's been going on for a long time. People trying to redirect blame. By the way, do you know who the first... I'm going to put the young people to the test here. Do you know who the first two people in the Bible to redirect blame were? Adam and Eve, that's right. The very first two people both did what? Redirected blame. Adam, did you eat of that fruit? That woman that you gave me, it's her fault. Looks at Eve. Here's what he said. What have you done? By the way, when I say that to my kids, it ain't good. What have you done? That serpent deceived me. And I redirected the blame. 
poor old devil didn't have nobody to blame. There wasn't but three people there and they ran it down to him and he was stuck. Then you got John 21 where Peter was getting the bright light shining on him by the Lord. And he got a bait of that. He decided he was tired of the Lord interrogating him. So he looked over at John and he said, what about him? What about him? She said, if he lives until I come again, what's that to you? You mind your own business. And then out of that, a rumor came out that John wasn't going to die until the Lord came back. So somehow among the disciples, they must have been playing that game of telephone. It got told so many times they got it wrong. You know? But Peter was trying to redirect blame. Now, what do they do? You know, look, I'm so, I'm so tired of hearing about the... You know, look, I'm not a big fan of the Muslims. I'm just going to be honest with you. All right? And by, by that, I just mean I'm not a big fan of Islam. I have some, I have some Muslim friends. All right, and, and, and some of, you know, there's some good people. But I'm not a fan of their religion. But they need to own what their religion is. And they need to own what their religion does. And then when, th when their religion does things, then, then what's the first thing some left-wing knucklehead's going to say? Remember the Crusades! Remember that about 800 years ago? Remember about 800 years ago when the Crusades got started? So, well, what's that got to do with the 55,000 people that's been bombed in the last 12 months all around the world? What's that got to do with that? What are they trying to do? They're trying to redirect blame. Look, just own it. And, and what's worse still is that, that people don't know enough about religion that they lump all of us in the same camp and then they want, they want to talk about the sins of the Catholic Church as if somehow we got to own that. I ain't owning that. You know, I'm not owning the pedophile priests. You know, I'm not, own, I'm not owning the hundreds of millions of dollars of payout to, to keep people quiet and, and, and out, out of the courtrooms. That's not on me. And by the way, it's, it's on them, but it still doesn't have anything to do with what, what's being talked about. You know, nobody wants to just sit down and accept blame for what they've done. You know, if you've made a mistake, own it and go on. You know, admit you've made a mistake. So redirecting blame. And then lastly, you have this. Once you're able to do all that, then you reverse what's right and wrong. You know, Isaiah 5 and verse 20, Woe to those that call evil good and good evil. Put light for darkness and darkness for light. Bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a world now that has taken what is wrong and called it right. And taken what is right and called it wrong. Now think about it. Again, for a long time, people who didn't want to live right were content to let the rest of us live right. You know, and, and their thing was, look, we want to just be left alone. Alright, fair enough. Fair enough, you want to be left alone. Okay. But that's not what they wanted. They didn't want to be left alone. They wanted to be validated in their sin and their perversion. And then when those of us that are living right wouldn't validate their perversion, now the attack is on what we're doing. Look, one of the stated, look, one of the stated objectives of the Black Lives Matter movement is the destruction of the nuclear family. Which, by the way, when you hear the phrase nuclear family, you need to hear the words biblical family. 
That's what the nuclear family is. It's a daddy and a mama raising kids in a household. That's God's plan. That's God's plan for the home. And yet our society has turned around and said, has turned around and said, you don't need a mom and daddy at home. You don't need mom and daddy at home. Well, let me ask you a question. Just what has that done for our inner city folks in the last 60 years? That's been real good for them, hasn't it? Raising kids without daddies in the home. 70% out of wedlock, out of wedlock birth and, and no and no father figures in the house. But that's what that's what we're that's what we've been sold as a bill of goods. You don't need a dad in the home. You don't need a mom and a dad in the home. In fact, it'd just be better if nobody had a mom and dad in the home and we'd just have a village raise the kids. I think I've read a book one time about taking the village. No, it doesn't take a village, it takes a mom and daddy. That's what it takes. So now what we have known and what science has known and what psychology has known for a million years is as best for the family unit is now being cursed as being in some way not good for the family unit. See, just reverse right and wrong. You know, you're born a man, just say you're a girl. Re- reverse it. Say you're born a girl, say you're a boy. By the way, let me just qualify this. I understand that there is a mental disorder known as gender dysphoria. It's been around for a long time. I mean, it's, it, we've known about this. But what we have going on right now is not gender dysphoria. It's the, glorific, it's the glorification of perversion. And it's the glorification of anti-biology, anti-science. Look, when you teach little kids, when they, that if they'll engage in certain behaviors, they'll be brave, they'll be heroes, they'll be lauded. Invariably, they will do those things, no matter, no matter how ridiculous they might be. And that's what's going on. So there's the reversal of right and wrong. Then lastly this, the terrible consequences of sin in eternity. I've got five minutes. Buckle up. Second Corinthians, I mean Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six through ten concludes with He will in flaming fire take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of God and the glory of his power. I'm going to focus on that phrase from the presence of God and the glory of his power. In other words, whatever good thing there is about God, it cannot be found in hell. Every good thing there is about God cannot be found in hell. John, 1 John 4 and verse 8 says that God is love. So guess what's not in hell? There is no love in hell. 1 Peter 5 and verse 10 says God is the God of all grace. There is no grace in hell. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, God is the God of all comfort. There is no comfort in hell. Romans 16 and verse 20 says, He is the God of all peace. There is no peace in hell. Romans 15 and verse 13 says, He is the God of all hope. There is no hope in hell. I realize it's not an inspired piece of literature, but in Dante's Inferno, over the gate of hell says, Abandon all hope, all ye who enter here. 
Why would anybody choose a life that in this life lacks love, grace, peace, comfort, and hope? And why would they choose a path to perdition wherein there is no love, grace, peace, comfort, or hope? That is the terrible consequence of sin. There is only one attribute of God that's found in hell, and that's God's wrath. And Romans 14 says, every bit of God's wrath is poured out into hell. There won't be any wrath in heaven. There won't be any need for it. All the acts of God's wrath that you can read about in the Bible will be multiplied a million times over and poured without mixture, Revelation says in that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. All of God's wrath will be in hell. And so I've got one more. I'm, gonna, I'm glad the young people are in here because the invitation part tonight is going to just, we're just going to build on that for just a few minutes in our invitation portion. So uh, I want to thank all of you for your, uh, your, your attention and, and, and being here tonight. Uh, let's close very quickly uh, with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity we've had to be here tonight and to study thy word. We're grateful for the revelation of, of, of your word that teaches us how to avoid the, the, the horrors of hell. Father, may we each as individuals make a conscious decision to choose the life and the path that leads to eternal life and not to eternal destruction. In Jesus' name, amen.